Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Welcome to The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. On this episode, uh, it's a pretty special episode because I got the chance to interview writer, uh, director, editor, um, basic all-round superstar Brian Trenchard-Smith and discuss uh, not just his uh, new book, which is out in Amazon, and make sure to hit the link in the show notes as well to find out a bit more about that book, um, but also to discuss uh, his career and mostly touching on The Man from Hong Kong, which has got a new 4K release uh, via Umbrella Entertainment, which also pairs up a bunch of his other films as well on that particular Blu-ray release. That hits at the end of October, so make sure to keep an eye on their website, which is umbrellaent.com.au, for a few more details of that, about that particular release. I won't keep you for too much longer. Uh, we're just going to listen to a short segment of a song, and then we'll jump into the interview with Brian Trenchard-Smith. So welcome everybody to a very special episode. I'm I'm joined by a really really fantastic guest. I'm honoured to be able to sit down and and have a discussion with a great Australian director and now author as well. And that is Brian Trenchard Smith. Hello, welcome. Hello, um, uh, thank you for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have uh, I've uh, written a novel. I I had. You know, I had a kind of a weird dream many, many years ago, and I woke up and I thought, oh, this would be an interesting premise uh, for, for a film. So I wrote a screenplay, uh, and it was optioned twice, uh, but we could never get um, the requisite level of star. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it was called The Headsman's Daughter, uh, and it took place in the 16th century uh, and present day simultaneously via a past life uh, swap um, and you know a 16th century girl finds herself caught up through this you know, you know uh, sort of paranormal event in a 21st century spy drama and similarly a 21st her 21st century counterpart finds herself plunged into uh, the you know cloak and dagger world of Elizabethan um, conspiracies and politics uh, and uh, by this mechanism, the, you know, the culture and societies uh, of both you know, time periods can be contrasted, uh, sometimes with a degree of humor, but generally the accent always being on excitement and twists and turns and surprises. So I realized you know, when uh, I was told, look, we love the screenplay, but you know, we can't get Scarlett Johansson, we can't get uh, Emily Blunt, we can't get uh, and all the, the, the wonderful young uh, rising stars of, of 10 years ago. Uh, and so the option lapsed, and you know, I, I put it aside, but it, it kept gnawing at my liver. Uh, and I thought, no, I, this, is a, a, this is a bizarre story, and it's, it, it's, it's very me. It's straight out of my id, um, and, uh, but it also has something to say because it deals with progressive issues such as you know, the, you know, the desire of major corporations to um, privatize water. Um, and, uh, but that, that's an issue you'll find in the book and I won't talk about it, but, uh, but m- mainly I wrote it as a, as a page turner, uh, and, and 
I, I do like writing prose mm. uh, and written a certain amount uh, online about cinema. Um, I write, uh, I present uh, lectures on, uh, on movies for Trailers from Hell. Uh, and I've also written pieces for another, for a cinema blog called uh, Talk House Film. Um, so um, I was able to, you know, in 248 pages, uh, really flesh out the characters, flesh out the politics, and try to provide as much sort of a, a dynamic imagery on the page um, so that people who read the book will almost feel like a movie is playing in their imagination. Uh, and uh, they go on, you know, what is hopefully a a really entertaining roller coaster ride. So, uh, and I, you know, I wasn't going to go through or jump through all the hoops you have to get to get a a top publisher because, frankly, the book publishing industry is in dire trouble, just like the music industry was, you Mm -hmm. know, 10, 15 years ago. So I decided to self-publish on Amazon and Kindle. And uh, so I shamelessly self-promote uh, my, my novel <laughs> whenever uh, someone gives me uh, the opportunity to talk. Um, but uh, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I also am quite proud for, as, as a, an aging geezer for the way I've written a young woman. Um, and so I think the film, the, the film, again, I say the film because <laughs> It's a film in my mind. Um, I, I think the book, uh, uh, so far, I mean, I've had 18 really good reviews on Amazon, uh, and it does seem to appeal to women, but it's not so femme as it doesn't appeal to um, you know, fans of, of rip-roaring, action-packed adventure. Yeah, and I guess in today's day and age with films like you know the Divergent series and Hunger Games and stuff like that, um, you know, hopefully uh, this gets people excited and, and fingers crossed you'll be able to turn into a film eventually. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I do want to do that, but it might also make a very good high-end television series. I mean, if, if I was to describe uh, The Headsman's Daughter in, in genre terms, it's uh, Game of Thrones meets Jason Bourne mm. on Freaky Friday. Uh, I'm quite sure there are some movie buffs in your audience who will who will who will understand that equation. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah, uh, so yeah, it, it's it, it was certainly interesting to to try and you know write a movie in prose uh, that uh, um, you know will you know be a page turner. Mm. Um, so well, yeah, and I think the you know with TV going the way it is with. Netflix and HBO mm. and all that kind of stuff that uh, certainly hopefully is an avenue that at yeah. least if not a film then then certainly down that path that would be that would be fantastic yeah well Alice the headsman's daughter has uh, you know, many more adventures ahead of her uh, but most particularly I think I will have to write uh, at least one sequel because there are uh, there are some wrongs to be righted and Alice seems to be, you know, despite being four centuries behind us, she has a wisdom uh, and uh, an insight into human affairs uh, that her very simplicity um, uh, it, it gives her an advantage. Uh, and her purity of heart, though, you know, do not piss her off. <laughs> so... Uh, anyway, so I, I, I hope Alice will continue to have a a, a life on the on the screen as well as uh, you know uh, as uh, in the book, um, and the time obviously a a young unknown will have to be found I think to play her because it really she really should be an eighteen nineteen year old girl, um, so um, and then I uh, the supporting cast well there are great parts for for a, you know, a, a hero and, and lots of villains. So uh, uh, that could provide the kind of the marquee name draw uh, for the project uh, and be a star maker uh, for the young girl who would play Alice. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, one of the things I've been really impressed with your career as a, as a whole is you're, you're a man of very many talents and, you know, writing a book and, and, you know, directing and all this kind of stuff is is 
fascinating for me at least as somebody who uh you know artistically i could i could never do anything like that so it's it's great to see that and no. I'm sure you have skills that I do not have. <laughs> well, uh, instance, I think... you, you run a podcast. Um, that's pretty damn good. <laughs> um, well, one of the things I think, uh, I guess we'll go back to sort of the beginning of your career in a way. And, and one of the reasons why I've got you to here is not only to discuss your book, but also to discuss um, The Man from Hong Kong, which is getting a Blu-ray release at the end of October, thanks to Umbrella Entertainment in Australia. And, you know, it's a fantastic film. And I guess part of the, the this particular podcast is to shine a light on Australian cinema in different ways. And, of course, during the 70s and the 80s, um, the new wave period was occurring and, you know, reinvigorating the Australian film industry. And, and yourself, you know, you were quite prolific during that period, um, you know, with films, of course, like The Man from Hong Kong and Turkey Shoot and BMX Bandits. And then you also helped do the trailers for films, too. So I just kind of want to touch on the trailer aspect to start off with before we get into your films in a way. How was it creating kind of like the, the first avenue for people to, you know, become acquainted with the films of that era? Well, it was um, – I've always found uh, the promotion of movies interesting academically from an analytical point of view. Mm-hmm. As a kid, going to the movies, you know, there would be a double feature. Then there would be a newsreel. And then there would be the trailers for the coming attractions. And sometimes I'd stay and see the program around because they didn't clear the theater after every session. You could just stay there all day if you wanted to <laughs> once you it yeah, works for me. Um, and uh, I always wondered, why did they choose that bit and that bit? And that was good or oh, that looked a little dull. Or, and sometimes I would uh, then I would see the films that I'd seen the trailers for. And I think, ah, I see. And they, they cunningly concealed this bit of information from us in the trailer or they gave that bit away. Hmm, should they have done that? And frankly, these days, trailers do give too much away. Mm because uh, the business is now get the opening weekend as big as possible. It doesn't matter if you kind of spoil the total impact of the film for the, for the end user, the customer, the ticket buyer. Well, the main thing is to pack that opening weekend. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I do think that trailers are, uh, give too much away these days. Anyway, I, I was always fascinated by trailers, and then when I came... Uh, to work for Channel 10 in Sydney, I volunteered to do uh, promos for them. I was a news film cutter mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes an on-camera uh, reporter on some trivial story. And, and sometimes I'd be sent out to shoot some film uh, on a clockwork bell and howl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, gone are the days. Uh, and, but um, now I just use my cell phone camera. Uh, so it's <laughs> sort of the same thing. Um, but uh, uh, so I said, I think, you know, station promos are a little dull, dare I say this, with all the sort of arrogance of a 20-year-old. Um, I think I could make them more interesting. And they gave me a shot. And indeed, I did make them more interesting because I concentrated on sex and violence, um, which uh, it always works. Uh, and uh, then Channel 9 kind of stole me. And I, uh, I, and I launched the new season's uh, uh, shows it, at the beginning of 1968, and I launched shows, you know, the Australian, you know, you know well, I launched them Australian style, like uh, Star Trek, the original mm-hmm. Star Trek, uh, and uh, um, it, it quite, it, you know, there was a wonderful show that you know, only ran one season, a Time Tunnel. It's a, become a cult uh, show. People still, you know, buy copies of it on. on on DVD, um, but there were Ironside um, and a, a whole ho- Mod Squad, uh, a whole host of those shows. So that uh, gave me, a, you know, more experience in how to do these things. Uh, and so they were so happy with me when I said I'm going around the world to learn more about filmmaking. Um, they gave me a reel of my stuff to take with me, and I showed it to various people in America. Uh, and that got me a job in England making trailers for feature films uh, in 
for a company that made you know, a, you know most of the the the, the non Hollywood or non studio system trailers, uh, so I ended up making trailers for Hammer Horrors. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, Frankenstein must be destroyed, you know, uh, an, an unlikely wish. There were sort of uh, four or five more sequels. Uh, you know, Horror of Frankenstein was one of them, and I did that that trailer too. Um, but I had a wide range of different genres that I was given to work in. Um, I made the trailer, or a trailer, uh, for Lindsay Anderson's film, If he hated it and then made his own, but they used mine outside of England. Um, uh, I, you know, made the trailer for Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West or the European or the British and European trailer. Um, and so I you know, had, had a bunch of experience in that regard, but I knew I always wanted to make films and I had to sort of make that leap now from the sort of promotion and publicity side of filmmaking to uh, production and how was I going to do it? And I had a standing invitation from uh, Clyde Packer, who ran Channel Nine at that time, uh, uh, uncle of, of James Packer. Uh, and uh, um, uh, he said, "Look, if you ever want to come back, we'll fly you back, and uh, you know, just keep come on working for us." And I said, well, I, "I took him up on this offer. I called from England and said, you know, you." You said you'd, you'd fly me back, and I, I'm prepared to come back and do the network promos for you know, a, a couple of years, but you have to give me programs to make. And mm-hmm. he said yes, and uh, um, so away, you know, uh, you know, my ticket was booked, and off I went. And uh, then had two glorious years at Channel 9 making you know, doing the sort of the, the, the big promos for the, the the big shows they had, both local and, uh, um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, some local productions like Division 4, for instance. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, and you know, I did, got to, to make, you know, initially a, 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 to be a, a sort of a, an associate producer on Beauty Quest uh, shows like Quest of Quests and... Uh, um, and shoot the film, the film sequences for that show, <clears throat> a, a number in both years, and uh, I devised programs. Uh, I did. Uh, I said, "What about a dramatized documentary about four Australians who won the Victoria Cross in Vietnam?" Uh, and they said, "Oh, that would be interesting." And I got Army uh, cooperation and duly made it. It is a lost film now, unfortunately. Channel Nine, you know, threw away the original. Mm. Um, your tape master, and, but I believe someone else has just done such a film uh, for television caught, with the same title called For Valor. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, but I, I was able to interview two, the two surviving Victoria Cross winners, who I think both are dead uh, before this this you know sh- this new version was made. And I got to interview John Gorton about wow. what it's like to be shot at. Because he, yeah, um, he had an interesting wartime experience. So I made that, and I, I also made shows about movies, and um, uh, went around the world and interviewed stars, and uh, made made TV specials um, with clips from their films, which was a very cheap way of actually providing local content, the obligatory volume of local content. For the network, um, because they, you know, they, they, they were a little, you know, they, they knew they had to, uh, you know, put on a certain amount, but they, they wanted to sort of minimize the cost. So this gave me the, the movie shows that I did gave me a relationship with uh, dis- great union theaters, um, particularly through a, uh, an executive there, John Fraser, who's you know gone to that great studio in the sky now, but. Uh, um, and, uh, yeah, so I got to talking with the great union people and then they said, well, why don't you, um, you know, come and, um, make, you know, we'll form a partnership company and, uh, make some films. I had by that stage made a, uh, a film called the stunt men, mm. which was about how stunt men did their, um, you know, you know, did the tricks of the trade. It won an award in, at the Sydney film festival. And that was, that proved that I could direct action. So that was, it was then, you know, it, it was my calling card when I went to Hong Kong to persuade Raymond Chow to, co, you know, to, to co-produce The Man from Hong Kong. Um, and 
Um, you know, that's that that briefly is the the ladder, um, the somewhat crooked ladder <laughs> up which I I ascended uh, from a lowly news cutter uh, to uh, someone who you know, uh, wrote and directed and uh, was the co-producing partner uh, of The Man from Hong Kong. Well, I think that's, that's I mean, it's fascinating to hear all that, especially given today today's day and age where I guess a lot of people just kind of expect, you know, f- aspiring filmmakers in a way go, I just want to be a filmmaker and they expect to be able to waltz in the door and make films straight away. And you know there is a there is a lot of understanding and a lot of uh, care and attention that is required before you you can even do that and you know and I think it's fascinating to hear the the way that you um, edited you know and created all these this various different content as well so obviously um you know the the main sort of the big film was the man from Hong Kong which is you know I've I've watched it multiple times in the last couple of weeks and I watched it a lot as a kid as well and you know it's it's always been a really exciting uh, action film for me because you know in Australia I guess genre cinema um especially in sort of the the 90s and 2000s has kind of disappeared a bit and with action cinema and stuff like that we just don't make that kind of cinema anymore which is really sad and so it's you know it's exciting to be able to watch these kinds of films in and look back on the 70s and 80s and see that we did a martial arts film and and things like that. So was there any kind of resistance in Australia at that period of time? Because, of course, during the New Wave period, it was kind of, you know, it's a while ago now, but it feels like it was a bit of a free-for-all. So, yeah, was there any resistance as to say, no, don't make a martial arts film or anything like that? Or Well, I I think I was pretty much alone in amongst the emerging filmmakers at that time in wanting to do pure genre. I mean, I, I, I looked, I was very glad that say that the government was at last investing in Australian films and had bullied, you know, well, we had bullied the government, a whole bunch of people, uh, you know, who had, you know, lobbied the government and said, look, there should be a withholding tax on the foreign owned distributors uh, receipts that they're shipping out of Australia. What about a ten percent withholding tax on that? That could finance some, some uh, Australian films, and they they were pretty terrified of that prospect. Uh, so uh, you know the you know uh, Greater Union and and uh, and Hoyts uh, did you know s- were prepared to co venture with government film and state film funding bodies uh, in 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 a lot of films thereafter, um, but. Uh, my philosophy was we can't be a, a sheltered workshop. We can't just depend upon government handouts for our, uh, our films. We must make them commercially successful. They, it is a business. That's how it is run elsewhere in the world. Mm. Though, again, in Europe, there is a lot of subsidy money if you know how to get it. Uh, but uh, it's a business. So uh, what is the international currency of the movie market? Uh, it's action. Mm. Action plays in every country in the world. A good punch-up uh, works just as well uh, in Australia, in England, uh, in France, in, in Russia, in Asia, uh, particularly in Asia. Love a good punch-up. Uh, and uh, so uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's what we should do. And uh, one of the other things I was doing at that time was writing a quarterly movie magazine called, believe it or not, Movie. Uh, it was Movie 72 when I started it, and when I handed it o- over to others, uh, it was Mo- Movie 78. So I wrote the 60-page, largely photographic, glossy uh, quarterly um, featuring you know all the upcoming films that were going to hit Australian cinemas, and uh, it, this also took me around the world uh, to interview people for that. I interviewed uh, Steven Spielberg after just after Jaws was uh, released, and he was preparing uh, um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, and uh, you know a wide variety of filmmakers, uh, and so uh, I. I kind of had my my you know my ear to the ground as to what were what were the coming trends, and I I knew um, of the huge success of the Bruce Lee movies uh, in Asia. They hadn't hit uh, America uh, yet, uh, but 
you know, that there was, you know, they were going to be released. And I thought, you know, this, this is amazing stuff. So I think if you can put this stuff into a Western oriented film, um, people would go see it all over the world. And what I wanted to do with the man from Hong Kong was to, um, reverse the usual cliches. Uh, normally, uh, white, uh, hero goes to Asia, uh, beats up lots of Asian bad guys, uh, and, you know, goes to bed with Susie Wong or, you know, generally, you know, takes the, the, um, uh, take, you know, has a relationship with a young Asian girl. Ah, oh, <laughs> that's all right. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Um, now, that wouldn't be permitted in a film. That would have to be cut out. But in a podcast, you'll, you'll yes. leave it in. Uh, uh, but, um, yes, yes. Getting, getting clean sound is important in a movie. Uh, uh, anyway, I, so uh, I, I thought, well, okay, that, that's, the, that's the formula whenever they have done a film in Asia. Um, you know, that, it's, it's very sort of... Um, Eurocentric, it's top down and uh, so why don't we do it the other way around, why don't we have a Chinese Dirty Harry uh, who's a bit of a loose cannon uh, and he comes to Australia on a, a routine extradition and decides, you know, we can do a bit better than this, we can take down the top guy and he doesn't get any cooperation whatsoever so he just uh, does what Dirty Harry does, he goes it alone um, and I thought well, okay, that's the premise now, I want to set it against the most attractive backgrounds I can find in Australia uh, that will, you know, suit the mechanics of the story. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, I want to show in widescreen, you know, cinemascope and color, um, the awesome beauty of Australia. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start at Ayers Rock. Uh, and as it was known at that time, I know it's Uluru now. Um, and and I know that that car chase and that fight on top of the rock was offensive to the, the indigenous people, but it wasn't my intention to offend them. But I was, like everyone at that time, somewhat insensitive, let's say, to their particular cultural beliefs. We've all been educated uh, you know, since then. And now whenever I come back to Australia, I, I see little warnings that there may be, pic there may be images of dead people or mm. people who are since dead <clears throat> because it, it, this is, you know, this respects an aspect of, um, of indigenous culture that, um, you know, has, has now been recognized as, uh, as a sensitivity that we should be aware of. So, but I feel like I've been asked this question recently about, you know, how did you get permission there? And they, they were never, they weren't happy about it. And, uh, uh, the evil angels had a, you know, or, or uh, had a problem being, you know, it took a lot of persuasion for uh, the, the, you know, the, the tribal council to allow filming there. Um, and, you know, they're never going to allow filming there again. So uh, <laughs> to a certain extent, I was to blame. Um, but it wasn't my desire to be insensitive. But, you know, when you look at the, the bold facts, uh, uh, we got permission from the Northern Territory government, and if ever there was a government that was insensitive to Aboriginal um, uh, issues, uh, it was the Northern Territory government of that time. Uh, and uh, so uh, we benefited from their insensitivity. But um, uh, I, anyway, I'd said let's start at Ayers Rock um, because that is that's an awesome picture of of you know, of the classic Australian outback. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I, I designed a, an action scene that would take place there. And my, my philosophy of, uh, uh, as far as Man from Hong Kong was concerned, was to have one action scene, one dialogue scene, one action scene, one dialogue scene. And so the audience actually has to put up with only 18 minutes of my somewhat arch dialogue in, in 103 minutes of, uh, of, of story. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, I constructed a fairly simple story in which, uh, which was a coat hanger for, um, a series of action set pieces against other interesting backgrounds. Um, I knew that I, it was a, a co-production I was going to be doing with a Hong Kong company and 50% of the film would have to be shot 
uh, in Hong Kong and 50% in Australia, and that's how both sides would collectively uh, pay for the film. Um, however, 90% of the film is set in Australia. So Australian interiors, such as the prison cell, uh, the, um, uh, the kitchen and restaurant, um, uh, the, the villain's lair, George Lazenby's penthouse uh, suite, um, those, uh, you know, those uh, inter- Australian interiors um, would you know, have to be shot in Hong Kong. Um, and so uh, that, you know, I, I, I therefore chose settings like a Chinese restaurant, uh, and of course, you know, Golden Harvest build great sets, uh, for, for, uh, Lazenby's, mm. uh, penthouse, but the Chinese restaurant was an actual operating one when we would, we'd come in at about 11 o'clock at night, uh, and work till 11 o'clock in the morning. And then they would go back to business. Uh, and, uh, you see the mess we made of that kitchen. Yes. Uh, and that, that, um, but yeah, but look, there were breakaway chairs, breakaway tables that we brought with us, and then we broke them, and then they put their real tables back. Uh, but uh, so I, I sort of designed the thing uh, to try and suit everybody, but to keep my basic philosophy, which was keep the action you know, flowing. Uh, and uh, so that was, you know, that was how I said about it. Now you asked, was there resistance? Well, there were many groups who were trying to get, you know, greater union uh, theatres to invest in their particular project. Uh, and, you know, there was a desire by many to make sort of more high-minded, um, culturally oriented, you know, uh, Australian stories, stories of Australia's past, um, and this is all well and good. Uh, and I would have liked to have made some of those films, uh, and, and a, a couple of them I think I could have made, um, uh, let's say, to be, you know, uh, you know more, uh, let's say, yeah, more exciting or more, more yeah. sort of, uh, le- yeah, less slow-moving, shall we say. Um, but because uh, the, the, you know, the international audience is not going to be familiar with all the, the nuances and flavors of, uh, of Australian society uh, and its past. I mean, but, but some very great art house films, as far as the rest of the world was concerned, were made mm. uh, in Australia at that time. Picnic at Hanging Rock, I think, was uh, uh, an outstanding example. Uh, and you know, so subsequently, of course, you know, Gallipoli. Um, but Gallipoli was an internationally themed film. It was mm. about the, uh, uh, you know, the futility uh, and misery of war, uh, but you know. Anyway, but, so I was sort of, kind of, uh, you know, I was a Johnny Come Lately in a way because I I made a lateral move into production from publicity and promotion, um, uh, and I was, you know, wanting to do stuff that people thought was, you know, trivial or you know, low class, if you like, in terms of uh, of what a high-minded filmmaker should be thinking about. Sure. Um, so, uh, but I didn't care. Uh, maybe I should have cared a bit more. But so I, I continued to make action vehicles uh, that I knew I could sell internationally, and I could still get, um, I could still get backing. Um, so uh, that was that was my philosophy. Now, you know, I wish I had made. Yeah, God, I would love to have made. Sunday too far away. I would love to have made uh, Silver City. Um, uh, you know, there, you know, I would love to have made some of the great miniseries uh, that Australia produced in the eighties. But I was too typed as the sort of B movie action man to be given that, that opportunity. But yeah, you know, I made my bed and have you know lain in it. Uh, for 50 years uh, with, you know, relative comfort, shall we say. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is that, you know, going back to what you're saying before, you know, action cinema is is a moneymaker in, you know, and I guess in a way, like those films, the the Australian films, I guess in the sense of, you know, they they tell Australian history story in in that regard. They're very good films, but... Um, not really going to light up the box office the way that an action film could do or have the cross-market appeal that, that an action film could do. Um, 
but with with your action films, I think they're they're all fantastic, and you know they they really are. The action sequences are superbly shot and just really really wonderfully choreographed. You know the car chase sequences, of course, are, are just brilliant, and and the the actual fighting itself is just fantastic too. Um, so I'm curious about how like you you worked with Grant Page, who is fantastic and uh, really just a, a brilliant guy and of course Samo Hung uh, had involvement as well so when you're working with people like that to create these sequences and do the stunts as well how do you go back about planning you know sequences like the the fight on on Ayers Rock or or the uh the the leap from the building at the end of the the film as well how do you plan those kinds of events well uh uh, I mean, I've got certain images in my mind, obviously, that I'm bringing to the table uh, uh, when we you know, set about uh, you know, the, the sequence. I mean, obviously, I've chosen the location uh, and, um, and found the parts of the location that, will, uh, that can most sort of go together or I can exploit as many different looks in the time and the schedule um, involved. I had to do... You know, I had to do the Ayers Rock sequence, you know, basically in three days. Uh, and uh, I climbed Ayers Rock three times in a day uh, at one point. <laughs> wow. uh, 900 feet. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, I, I had a fine set of calves at the, <laughs> the end of that, uh, of that shoot. But Sam Hung, who was the 22-year-old, uh, brilliant young, you know, stuntman choreographer, that Golden Harvest had, had, had acquired. Uh, he didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Mandarin or, China, or Cantonese. Uh, so, and there was no, no interpreter there for us. We, in all the Sydney sequences, we had an interpreter. Uh, but he went home with Wong Yu. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was a scene without Wong Yu. So, uh, so Samo uh, and I communicated kind of with sign language, uh, which... You can you can choreograph a fight with sign language, and you know when um, I you know, said that I, I wanted Roger Ward kicked in the balls from behind, you know I I, I sort of leant against the side of, of the rock in that little depression that we did it in, um, bending forward, and then with my arm behind me pointed at at my my ass. Uh, and he got he got he, he, he got the message, and that that's the moment when he, you know, he, he, you don't quite. It's a nice little surprise when you know Roger gets sort of knocked you know, away, and he's facing, and he's he hits the side of this depression, and then uh, you know instead of you know, uh, and and Samo just sort of kicks him in the balls from behind, uh, and that is the first of many groin kicks in in in, yes. in, in the, the film. Which is another of my little eccentricities, I'm afraid. Uh, I don't know what this tells you about me from a Freudian standpoint, <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, prior to the to that time, you know, groin kicks were just not allowed in movies, um, and so I did many of them <laughs> in that film, and many of them were cut out in other parts of the world, and particularly the UK. Uh, at least they they had the good sense to uh, uh, and the recognition of what I was a, about to allow uh, Wong Yu to kick Samo in the balls. Uh, uh, and uh, when I then cut to um, uh, a, a pool table uh, and uh, the opening shot I- exploding the triangle of balls, uh, and that, that's another example of my my subtlety. Um, I but love that they, shot the as well. <laughs> got the joke uh, and allowed that one, but cut virtually every other groin kick uh, and uh, and the squeezing of, of Grant's balls. You know the the, the the squirrel grip moment we call it. Um, uh, they, that was cut out in England and probably other places. Uh, but anyway, uh, I, I worked with Samo with sign language, uh, and I think we we did a nice little fight. Um, obviously, Western uh, actors and, uh, and and stuntmen um, are not as flexible or as fast uh, as the trained Chinese uh, counterparts. Uh, so it's often a way that you you you, know, you 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 see a greater fluidity in all Asian martial artists than 
at that period in in in, in cinema than uh, you know uh, Hollywood heroes. Uh, you know, could could muster. I mean, uh, and you 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 look at how you look at Enter the Dragon, and you you look at how John Saxon, who was a uh, who, who learned karate and had lessons from Bruce Lee, you 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 look at you know how high he can get his leg mm. compared to how high you know a Chinese actor can get his leg, and that's um, you know there's a world of difference. Uh, so uh, we had to deal with the fact that. You know, uh, we we had to make our guys look good, yeah. uh, and uh, and that was you know that was challenging. I mean, uh, George Lazenby had, had a lot of good taekwondo training, uh, and uh, so he he comes off quite well. But generally, from a Chinese point of view, we are slower than they are, mm. uh, and we had to we had to work on that, uh, and that can be done with choice of angle or. Um, you know, fast cutting, or in some cases, speeding up the film. Sure. The film was shot at 24 frames per second. Uh, so if you then shoot it at 22 frames per second, you will imperceptibly speed up the action. I mean, I, I can perceive it, but the regular audience won't. If you go down to 20 frames per second, which they used to do quite a lot to make horses go faster in the sort of 30s and 40s and 50s westerns, uh, you can see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going too far. But so that <clears throat> there were these little tricks in the, of the trade. But generally, as far as the choreographing of the fight scenes, you plug into the expertise of the participants uh, and uh, work around it. My uh, the way I had you know written the, the kitchen and restaurant fight really was uh, n- you know not uh, pages and pages of description. I just said the fight uses every unpleasant weapon uh, available in the kitchen, and so uh, then we, I came to the kitchen and I looked at what they had, um, and I thought, great, um, can we get some dry ice? in that big wok to make it look like it's boiling water uh, and have, you know, have somebody, one of the, you know, one of the two of them throw it at the other. And we, we think that, you know, boiling water has been thrown. Uh, those hooks that uh, uh, get swiped, uh, those are real. And the, the choppers, <laughs> real. And, you know, we had to be careful uh, and use the real items yeah. uh, that, uh, that were there in the kitchen. Um, and, uh, uh, so, you know, it, <clears throat> and we did it, you know, obviously in sequence progressing, uh, uh, all the way through the fight. And as you can see, uh, yeah, Grant's pants split, uh, and he has these sort of bright yellow underwear, uh, that become available, uh, <laughs> or visible, let's say, uh, at, at some point. Um, and of course in those days we didn't think about double costumes, uh, we just thought, oh, his jeans will be fine, you know. Um, we didn't expect it to to you know, split up the groin. Uh, so anyway, so that it, I get often asked about whether the uh, the, the yellow pants was de- were deliberate, uh, but uh, and I'd like to take credit for that. Uh, <laughs> but actually, uh, you know, that was an accident, and <clears throat> and often I find sometimes accidents, uh, well, yeah. Uh, it was a happy accident. Uh, I thought, I think that's funny. I mean, people's clothes do get ripped in fights. Uh, and this was unintentional, but hey, it happened. So let's use it and let's go with it. Uh, so hence the yellow underwear. I'm, I'm actually ans- answering a question that other people have asked me about the, the, the yellow underwear. Did I, did I plan that? Well, <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, I like that aspect of it because it adds to the, the scrappiness of the fight and, you know, and it doesn't, it is choreographed, but it doesn't fit, it doesn't come across as excessively so choreographed, you know, it doesn't feel like somebody's behind the scenes manufacturing it and, and all that. It feels very, very real. And I think mm. that's fantastic. Yeah. So, Wait, I mean, Wang Yu. Uh, had had a few real fights in mm. his life, including with two Chinese policemen who were trying to arrest him, I think, for uh, speeding. Uh, and uh, so he, he's had his, his you know, he he's a, a, was a well-practiced fighter. And what he brought to his movies, uh, his Hong Kong movies, was a less stylized classical 
uh, martial arts technique and more of a street fighter. Mm. Uh, and, and I thought that would be good um, to, to, to that, his style would work well for the story. Um, and, you know, the more balletic style uh, of martial arts uh, is fine uh, in, you know, say, a Chinese period piece or, or a, uh, you know, like the, the one-armed swordsman, the one-armed boxer, master of the flying guillotine, uh, and uh, Beach of the War Gods, which incidentally is a, a really good uh, you know, uh, Hong Kong movie that Wong Yu him, himself directed, was shot in Taiwan, actually. Sure. Have you ever seen Beach of the War Gods? I haven't, but you know, I, have, I have seen some of his, uh, his Hong Kong stuff, and you know, it's really exciting, but I'll have to track it down because... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of the, the Magnificent Seven in period dress. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the evil Japanese are, uh, are you know, persecuting this village, so he recruits his, uh, uh, his specialists of different weapons, and they come in and they, they slaughter the, you know, the, the invaders. Uh, and, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's very well choreographed, but in the classical, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of fantastical mm. style um, with much uh, impossible leaping uh, <laughs> and, and so forth. Uh, but but great stuff to watch. Yeah, I'll I'll have to track it down for sure. Um, I think you could find it on DVD. Yeah. So one of the things which I always has always amazed me about this film is that you know the this obviously the, there's so much to talk about with the action sequences, but the one that really amazes me is the explosion in Sydney, you know, in, in that always like, it's obviously it's a, it's real. It's something, you know, the, the, there's a lot of fire and stuff there. So how did, how was the reaction to that with the, you know, with people in Sydney at the time and, and was there any kind of upset regarding that at all or? Um, yes, there was a little <laughs> bit of an upset. Um, the explosion could be seen for 30 miles um, it was on the top of the Esso building, which is the uh, – I don't. I think they've demolished that building since. And I, I, I hasten to add that that was not because we blew it up. <laughs> uh, but, no, I mean, we, uh, we got permission from that building uh, to uh, put little um, – uh, yeah, what we call our pots, uh, which, you know, contained uh, a, a naphthalene – yeah, napalm-like uh, mixture, mm-hmm. uh, and they were to go on the outside ledge of uh, the, you know, the, the top floor, um, and the blast would be directed outwards. Um, and yeah, I, frankly, it left some scorch marks on <laughs> the uh, uh, on the ledge, which you know, we said it wouldn't uh, damage the. It didn't damage the window. We sort of uh, uh, protected the window. Uh, but we had, you know, there were some scorch marks which were hard to remove. Mm. But, you know, um, it, it, they were on the very top f- floor ledge. So that that was okay. That went off fine. And we had notified the fire department what we were doing. And there was a uh, fire station right opposite the building. And the fire firemen were all watching what we were doing and finding it quite entertaining. Um, but the whole thing was meant to have been concluded by four o'clock in the afternoon, which we didn't know was when the shift changed uh, <laughs> right across uh, Sydney. Uh, we were meant to have done uh, the explosion on the roof um, by then, but we still had, you know, just getting cam- get getting a, a large pyrotechnic, um, uh, you know, a- event. Co- you know, coordinated safely, uh, you know, took a little bit of, of doing. And I don't think the owners of the building are quite aware of the size of the fireball that we uh, were putting on that roof. Now, you've seen the roof in yeah. the film. Uh, there are lots of open space, um, nothing flammable particularly uh, there. So, uh, and we had hired someone who'd worked on Apocalypse Now, and done a certain amount of the um, uh, the uh, those huge napalm explosions in the jungle, um, and he was an Australian who'd worked on on that film, um, and uh, 
he'd shown us some you know, demonstrations of his work, and I even uh, had shot some of it already for what would then eventually be the four-part <clears throat> four TV series Danger Freaks that I, I did um, the next year. Um, so I had faith in him, um, and uh, we, you know, we were ready to go, but it was past four, um, and we didn't actually uh, you know, think that that was a problem because all the guys at the, at the fire station across the street were watching and anxious for the next big bang. Um, so, um, I called action and, uh, the explosion was detonated. Um, and it was kind of a bigger fireball, I think, than anyone was quite expecting. And it was, uh, could be seen for 30 miles. And, uh, I think initially, you know, traffic on the Harbor Bridge, which, uh, was not far away, slowed, <laughs> wondering what has happened, you know, has the SO building exploded? Uh, and, uh, uh so... Uh, there was a little bit of uh, uh, of flack for that because naturally uh, the the new shift at all the fire brigade stations across Sydney had no knowledge that this was going to happen. It was supposed to have happened before their shift. So suddenly, massive numbers of fire engines suddenly converged on the <laughs> on our street, um, and there were kind of well red faces all around, including mine. Yes. Um, but uh, look, I will. You know, I don't mean to be cavalier and uh, insensitive about it, but, but it, it, nobody was hurt. No damage was done um, other than some scorch marks uh, on, on the window ledge at the top floor. Um, and in, nobody, you know, crashed into a, a car by being distracted by the, the explosion um, because once that fireball had uh, gone off, uh, then residual smoke, you know, mm. remained. Uh, but it wasn't like <clears throat> in the other. There were going to be continuous explosions. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, but it, we, yeah, I would say that we were all learning on the job. Uh, we'd never done anything this big or this complex in terms of action staging. Uh, and so there were a few little issues that uh, slipped through the cracks. Now when I blow something up, and I, you know, I, I, I do blow things up from time to time and, and, and I enjoy doing it. Uh, it, it I, I had a motto in those days, if in doubt, blow it up or at least set fire to it. Um, because fire is great production value and fire is relatively cheap. Uh, so, you know, fire in an action scene can bring you know, something to life. Hence, you know, that's why I, I set fire to George Lazenby. Um, because, you know, I wanted to have a uh, I wanted to have a star actually do his own fire stunt just as Wong Yu and a host of other Hong Kong stars had already done mm. in Hong Kong. Uh, but no Western star had, by, in 1974, when we actually shot the movie, uh, to my knowledge, had actually done their own fire stunt. They generally had a, a stunt double who was wearing a full fire suit. Uh, we were using this new fire retardant jelly called water gel. Um, which you know, has now you know, been you know, pirated <laughs> uh, over the, across the world. And uh, it's called Stunt Gel, or um, there are many different uh, brands of it. And it's been refined to such an extent, incidentally, that you can actually put this gel on your face and, it can, and, and there's a, you can actually set your face on fire uh, because it's a very low-yield, uh, low-burn um, you know, uh, you know, particular chemical balance that both insulates the the surface and provides something that uh, can be ignited. And I think you'll find demonstrations of this from uh, stunt teams and, and pyrotechnic people on on YouTube. Uh, anyway, back to uh, you know, back to to, to the explosion. Um, yeah. Uh, nowadays, we will you know we pay much more attention to safety um, because. You know, uh, we've learned, and uh, you don't want to, you know, anyone to get hurt uh, when you're making a movie. A movie is there for entertainment. It's not finding a cure for cancer. Uh, no one, you know, should get, you know, should get hurt. Um, so um, that's yeah. that's how films should be approached. It's an it, it is a complicated industrial manufacturing process uh, where there are lots of opportunities for accidents. Um, 
things, you know, you, you've got lights that can fall over, you've got electrical, you know, cables, um, and you're working in a hurry because time is money. So you, know, you have to take into account uh, and have skilled people and skilled problem predictors uh, when you're doing action sequences. Yes, and, you know, I'm repeating myself here again, but the action sequences in your films are, are just fantastic. And, you know, I, I guess it's, you know, the 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 learning aspect of, of the you know, these action sequences is makes for some really, really entertaining uh, cinema. So that's, it's fantastic. Now I won't keep you much longer. I'll have, I've just got one more question and then uh, I'll let you uh, head on your, your way for your day. Um, there's usually, there's one question which I always ask guests when they come on, especially when we're talking about Australian cinema. And that is, is there a particular Australian film that you would recommend people track down or seek out? Doesn't matter when it came from that, you think is really uh, sort of a indicative of, of, you know, the the Australian cinema as a whole. It can be one of your films as well if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Putting you on know, the spot here. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I actually yeah that 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 I wish I had had time to think about that, um, but uh, uh, because yeah there are films that are uh, uh, that I really enjoyed that. Uh, um, you know that I, you know, uh, uh, that everyone has enjoyed. I to try and think of one that has not been given the credit that it is due. Um, uh, I, hmm, uh, I mean, be easy to, you know, pluck something, uh, you know, uh, out of the air. I mean, I think next of kin, it was an underrated horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, mm, yes, uh, and and also, frankly, I haven't seen nearly as many uh, um, uh, Australian films as have been made since I, you know, made my move to to Hollywood. Sure. Uh, which you know, I at the that at the time that I made that move in 1990, um, there weren't many opportunities uh, for me to. Uh, to, to make the kind of films that I was good at uh, in, in Australia, they, that such films had fallen into disfavor. Um, and uh, so I had to go where I felt that I could uh, have my skills recognized. Uh, but I've come back to Australia many times to make uh, generally American-financed uh, telemovies or series. Um, but... Uh, so there are a lot of films that I have missed, and I would be doing people an injustice, I think, uh, uh, you know, if um, uh, to, you know, uh, because there are, you know, there are some very worthy pieces. Um, but um, next of kin is a great film, though. It's it's very it is good. yeah yeah yeah. But that, that but it it was never given any credit at the time. Mm-hmm. It has got uh, it, it's got a lot of credit. Since uh, generally by, uh, by by international critics, I mean the one film of mine that got no respect in Australia. Um, uh, well, apart from Turkey Shoot, obviously, but, but yeah. that, that was understandable, I suppose. Uh, but Dead End Drive In, I think, is one of my best films, uh, and uh, there's an, a Blu-ray that's come out in the UK and uh, uh, America. No, there's no inclination for people to do a Blu-ray in Australia because it was never a well-thought-of film, but it's very well thought of by Quentin Tarantino, mm. who you know, mentioned it, it you know, singled it out particularly for praise in Not Quite Hollywood, Mark Hartley's great uh, documentary about these very years that you talk about. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, so Dead End Drive-In, I think, compri- is, is in its way... Uh, an old-fashioned uh, exploitation movie in the classic tradition of putting some political uh, comment into um, an exploitation formula, uh, but then elevating the whole thing by by virtue of what the film is saying subtextually. Um, it was a film that dared to be socially and culturally critical of its very target audience, teenagers, uh, and <laughs> 
layabout youths uh, um, uh, who, you know, once upon a time would go to the drive-in and by the time we made that movie, they were all sitting on their couches watching uh, VHS. Uh, but anyway, it was, with, it, it was a film that had something to say, particularly about uh, racial prejudice. Uh, and it was, you know, it was not reviled in the way that critics reviled Turkey Shoot, when I understand their point of view, uh, but I really was surprised they didn't get it. Uh, they didn't get Dead End Drive-In, uh, and the distributor, you know, decided to open it in a theatre that was still undergoing remodelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> some people I t- told me... I- we couldn't find which hall it was playing in in this multiplex. Uh, anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I think uh, history has proved me right, and uh, the the you know, the response to the Blu-ray of Dead End Drive in in the UK and America has been phenomenal, uh, and uh, it's a film I'm very proud of. Um, and uh, but yeah, it, it didn't get the respect it deserved. But there are many other filmmakers who have suffered similar fates uh, with, um, you know, with films that were either mishandled in distribution or, you know, just, uh, you know, know, were not critically understood. Mm. And I'm sure you would have your list. I mean, do you have a favorite neglected film from the last 25 years? Um, Yeah, I mean, one of the films that we've covered, which was Welcome to Whoop Whoop, um, which was Stephen Elliott's follow-up to Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's it's a equally loved and equally hated film, <laughs> but I it's it's one that I I have great affection for, and so that's my kind of go to pick as a as a film that if people haven't seen it, I recommend catching it. Yeah, um, but one of the things I really enjoy about your films is, as you were saying about Dead End Drive-In, and and I promise I wrap up in a second, but um, is it that you do have that subtext? You know, they aren't just you know genre films there there is something more to them and you know man from hong kong has a it's a as you were saying at the beginning it's it's a very progressive film because of the way you've cast and the the roles that you've you've cast people in so i think that's really that elevates your films uh, much higher and and I, I feel sorry for anybody who doesn't enjoy Turkey Shoot as well because, you know, it's a personal favourite of mine. I think it's a, a wonderful film and really informed my taste of cinema uh, as I grew up quite a lot. So, yeah. When you appreciate the vein of satire yes. that <laughs> is present in all my films. Yeah. And, uh, well, I won't say all. I've made some, some more serious films. I mean, DC 9-11 Time of Crisis about what went on in the White House in the 10 days that followed the 9-11 attacks that is played dead straight uh there are a couple of little subtle moments which might be seen to be critical of george bush um and reveal that he had his sights set on invading iraq and he had the pretext uh that kind of escaped the notice of the right-wing producers uh but uh but that was a dead straight film with none of my uh kind of nudge nudge wink wink uh a sense of satire, but and there are a couple of others as well. Uh, but uh, you know, I like to celebrate and and uh, you know uh, have have a you know a little bit of fun with whatever genre that I'm I'm working in. And you know, Siege of Firebase Gloria is you know a a war movie, um, but it's also you know, and it was progressive, very progressive in its day because it suggested that the Viet Cong were brave too. Mm. Um, uh, but it you know it has a a strong vein of black comedy um in the way that uh, lee ermy plays the the central part uh and uh, have you seen siege of firebase gloria i haven't actually uh, unfortunately i i definitely need to seek it out for sure yeah I, it, you will particularly like it anyway it's uh, out on blu-ray and and if you have multi region yes. um you you uh, that honestly worth investing uh, getting getting yourself a copy and getting a bunch of people around and i think it, it, it like dead end drive in i think it's one of my finest films yeah and you know dead end drive in is, is wonderful uh, yeah man from hong kong uh, uh bmx bandits dead end drive in siege of firebase gloria and stunt rock um those you know those those films all are very me in yes. terms of my eccentricities uh, and and my skills. 
Yes, we will be covering BMX Bandits on a, on a future episode uh, sometime next year, so I'm looking forward to discussing that with somebody who hasn't seen it, I, I believe, um, so I'm really looking forward to that. But yeah, I thoroughly enjoy um, you know, all of your films and, and thoroughly enjoyed this discussion. It was, it was really fantastic, and hopefully... Well, thank you for, yeah. for your informed questions. <laughs> they I'm, help. Oh, yes, I, I well, I've... You know, I've grown up watching your films, so I've, I've, yeah, it's it's been a great honour to be able to discuss them with you. And hopefully, uh, the Headsman's Daughter, um, please, people, go and pick it up on Amazon. Um, the more you and pick Kindle. it up, yeah, and Kindle mm-hmm. as well. And the more you buy, uh, the greater chance that you know we'll be able to see a film of it or a TV series. So fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you very much. No worries. And, uh, and- Good morning to you, and uh, well, and good night to you, I guess, too. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, so. you, you have a fantastic day. Cool. I will. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Last New Wave. As mentioned before, make sure to head over to the, the various websites, which I'll put the links into the show notes at the bottom, uh, to find more information about Brian's book, as well as more information about the 4K release of The Man from Hong Kong through Umbrella Entertainment. So thanks again for listening. It's, it's a pretty exciting uh, episode, and I, I know that I could have sat down and and certainly listened to Brian Trenchard-Smith talk for, for hours and hours on end about his career. and. There is certainly a lot to learn from his work and and it's just a, a wonder that I was able to sit down and be able to sit and discuss his, his films with him. So make sure to follow us on social media, which is The Last New Wave on Facebook, on Twitter. Also hit us up on our website, which is abfilmreview.com for previous episodes as well as episodes of the main show. Uh, if you can leave us a review on iTunes, it would be fantastic. It just helps other listeners seek out the show. So till then, thank you very much for listening again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Last New Wave. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.